You're listening to Managing Leadership Anxiety, Yours and Theirs, a podcast offered in partnership with Missio Alliance. Each episode, we discuss internal and relational pressures, how they block effective leadership, and how we can move through them to a greater health. And now your host, Steve Cuss. All right, folks. Hey, as many of my long-term listeners know, I'm currently in spiritual direction. I'm in an Ignatian prayer group and uh, one-on-one once a month with a spiritual director and then also with a small group. Uh, These guys I'm calling my band of brothers. It's just amazing to get to hear each other's journey together. And then this large group teaching and each month we have a different focus. Several months ago, uh, they gave us a candle And uh, this is now a practice I've been doing on the podcast for a few episodes. I'm going to do it with us today. And they told us to light the candle in any two scenarios. The first scenario is when you are keenly aware of God's presence. And the second scenario is when you um, want to be reminded of God's presence. So I don't know where you're at right now. And I'm aware that a lot of people listen to podcasts while you're out with your dog or you're driving. But you can still just pause right now as I light my candle my infamous pumpkin vanilla spice candle. A fall flavor in the middle of winter. Feels wrong, doesn't it? Also a red-blooded man with a pumpkin candle. Even so, God is good and I light this candle as a simple confession that God is with us right now on this podcast, whether we recognize God or not. One of the things we talk about on MLA Podcast is the simple idea that when we're filled with chronic anxiety, it can be really hard to be aware of God. And so just the candles really helped me. I'm on my fourth candle. I started getting bigger candles as I was burning through them. Um, But here we are. So my candle's lit for the whole episode. If that helps you to, even now, you can just breathe in and breathe out. What we encourage people to do in my workshops is just take a deeper than normal breath. Um, a slower than normal breath, just a true moment of mindfulness that God's with us. Uh, This week, I reached out to my Capable Life members and also some friends on social media, and I said, hey, what is it you want to hear more about on the show? And what came back was four pages of questions and topics. Four pages. This was so helpful. Those of you who submitted a question, thank you so much for taking the time to tell me what you wanted to talk about. And as I read some of the questions, some of it got into the expertise of my wife, Lisa. So without further ado, my favorite guest, my favorite human in the world, Lisa Cuss. Welcome to the show. Thanks, babe. It's really fun to be a part of this today. Uh, Before we get into these questions and even your story, what's your take on a pumpkin pumpkin candle for a man and, and, and a pumpkin candle in winter? Where are you at with this? Pumpkin candle in winter. I think, hey, you got to be who you are. And I guess it's technically spring now, so... Yeah, pumpkin candle can go any time of year. I'm wearing fall-colored pants. That's all that matters. Yeah. Yeah. And then uh, you still look at me as full man with pumpkin. You were okay with each other. Absolutely. Okay. Yep, pumpkin makes you even more full man. Oh, so hey, guys, for a long time, I've been telling people, oftentimes I'm in workshops and people will ask me a question and I'll say, oh, I wish my wife Lisa was here because this is a field that she's done a lot of study in. Lisa, you're a, a, a clinical mental health therapist. Just tell us briefly, this is a late career shift for you. Mm-hmm. Tell us what got you into becoming a therapist. Yeah, um, I think always in my life, several things lead to my decisions, the next steps. So um, for our listeners, originally I was a teacher. I worked with elementary students, um, grades K through eight over, I think, a period of 14 years. Yeah. And then um, I think contributions of just probably Enneagram 9, um, my desire to please people, my role as a pastor's wife, um, role in motherhood, um, all caused me to want to look more into identity. Like, who am I? And so I attended a class that was two years and combined theology with um, the gospel. And we spent six months on identity and I was blown away. Um, And so that began a search for me of, man, who am I outside of my roles? And made me just thirst to go deeper into that. Um, Also, we, you know, in our earlier years in the church, um, we lost, we lost some dear friends to death um, and walked through both moms and children in this whole process. And I found myself just coming up short, like how 
how do you sit with people when you don't have answers and you want to do more than just a hug? Um, what does that look like? And especially when you can't take the pain away. Um, and so that was another piece of, man, I'd really like to learn more about grief and how we sit with others in it and not try to fix. And then as an elementary teacher, I, I worked um, in a homeschooling organization and worked with a lot of children that had anxiety and found myself pulling children out of the classroom to work on their, on their anxiety and to make space for it. And then I found that I cared more about that than I did the science content that I was teaching. And so all three of those together were like, man, I've got some work on me I want to do. And I've got, I want to figure out how um, I can even more impact the world around me. Um, and so that led me to going to school to be a therapist. Yeah, it was amazing in 2014. Our kids were teens and preteen and you went back and got a master's degree. Yeah. And I remember the graduation day was incredible in 2018. And yeah. the other thing I want to say, babe, is like even in our very earliest years of marriage, I remember your first ever classroom was a fourth grade public school. And even then you were super interested in unlocking what was blocking kids yep. as more or as much as the content they were learning. So this has been a passion of yours for years. Okay. So you graduated, you've set up your own practice. Mm -hmm. Just give us this little sense of out of the breadth of psychology, what are two or three areas that you really love to focus on and help people with? Absolutely. Um, I think my favorite right now is looking at um, nervous system regulation and what is happening within us when we are overcome by fear, anxiety, and also depression, um, kind of the opposite end of anxiety, but really connected. And then I'm really, I'm just loving what is the meaning that we're making out of what's going on around us and what's going on within us. Um, we're, we're always living out of a story, kind of what, what we believe about ourselves, mm. what we believe about the world, and what we believe about God at work in the midst of it. Um, so that's just been fascinating to bring together, whether it's in play therapy, whether it's with teens or adults. Yeah. Yeah. So you do play therapy. You do some work in what's called parts of self. Mm -hmm. uh, you do some trauma work. Yep. You do some emotion-focused attachment kind of work. And then this nervous system regulation, which brings us to some of the questions we had yeah. today. And yes. actually, one of the reasons you're on the show and I think we'll be back on for sure because this is a field that you've done so much work in and I've learned a ton from you, but I don't feel able to teach it. I know when people mm -hmm. ask me things, you know, I famously talk about the spinning mind, racing, heart, tightening gut and people- Which very, is so helpful. It yeah. is helpful. It's so helpful, helpful to notice it. Yep. But people very quickly say, okay, well, now what? And I'm like, <laughs> right. I wish Lisa was here because she could help you. So let me ask one of the questions that came in, babe, and mm -hmm. let's get started on some of these physiological responses. Okay. Here's the question that was submitted. By the way, those of you who asked questions, we've captured them all, and we're going to try to address many of them over this year. We'll probably get three or four today. Um, and also, Lisa and I were chatting before we hit record. We thought it would be most honoring to not name the question asker in case it's discreet. Yeah. So we just want to thank you for sending them in, but we are keeping the source confidential. Okay, here's the first question. The person wrote in, some of us have had an experience this year of being caught in the grip of fear. It may be a combo of work-related anxiety, health issues, too much going on, oppression of the enemy. When you are hyperventilating and cannot calm down, what do you do to go from the grip of fear to the grip of grace? This is the question that made me say, Lisa needs to answer this one. Oh, man. And to the person who wrote that question, I was like, oh, that question gets me in my core. That is, it's a powerful question. How do we go from the grip of fear to the grip of grace? Honestly, it's one that I personally am in the midst of a journey with. It's interesting. The difference between Steve and I is, I think, babe, right for you, most of your anxiety is in your mind. Yeah. And so it's something that cognitively you can really capture and catch and do something with. For me, most of my anxiety ends up in my body. And then I have like thought loops that go crazy, but just using mind does not help me move through anxiety. So one of the things that we want to realize is that the brain is both in the mind and in the body. And that means that your nervous system is at work connecting how we think, 
what's going on in the body and then the triggering of the feelings and the emotions that we have. Let me jump in here. This was revolutionary for me because, and you, you said I'm more cognitive. I had never considered, even though my brain is clearly a bodily organ, I think about it only as a mind. Right. No, I used to also. And I think, I think for those of us who feel in the body, when we can't just say, stop it, you know, that old joke about, um, what was Bob, it, Bob, Bob Newhart? Newhart. Yeah. He's like, it's... I can solve any problem in five seconds. And he listens and stop it, right? Like we all want to do that. And yet when you hold it in your body, it, you can't just say, stop it. In fact... The body needs to be noticed and it needs to be seen and it needs curiosity in order to work through. So stop it will just make it usually grow more intensely. So I was, I was doing a workshop recently, I think it was two workshops ago, and I did my little spinning mind racing heart tightening gut, where are you? Maybe you're all three. And this very brave young lady put a hand up and she said, Where's tears on your list? Oh, I love that. Right. And I, I asked her, I said, that's fascinating. Tell me more because that would be one of your responses oh, as well. Oh my gosh, yes. And yes. she said, I first know I'm anxious through tears. That's my first indication. Yeah. Oh, so interesting. Yeah. Which is so good because at least it's a release, right? Of what's going on in the body. It was a wonderful moment. Yeah. yeah. So good. One of my favorite researchers is Lisa Dion, and she has developed this whole way of working with children called synergetic play therapy. And quite honestly, I use it a lot with adults as well. So I just wanted to go through to answer his question, the four threats of the brain that children experience, but when we experience them as children, they're rooted in us. And so we also experience them as adults. So the first one is talks about a threat. And first, even to look at Fear and threat exists because we, for some reason, don't feel safe, right? So if we look at these threats, it means that somehow we're not feeling safe. The first one is physical and emotional safety. I think physical safety is the one that everybody knows and gets, but the emotional safety piece means that somehow we are perceiving in our environment that I am not safe enough to show up as me, mm. Now, the nervous system, here's where we'll nerd out, the autonomic nervous system, which is where that famous limbic system and amygdala is also a part of it, is constantly searching every environment we walk into. So even now, as I'm looking at you, I'm reading your cues to know, um, yeah, I feel safe enough to share this. I feel safe enough to be vulnerable. We do this when we walk into church, when we walk into work, when we're parenting our kids, when we, um, any any situation, a role change. And we're, we're looking at the environment to figure out, wow, am I safe enough to show up as me? What's interesting to me is that also happens on the inside and we'll get to that later, but we are looking inside of us at our own judgments to see if we feel safe enough to show up as who we are too. We'll get to more of that later. This is why we need a nap because there's, <laughs> right, there's so much going on. There's so much going on in our nervous system. What I'm thinking about here, babe, is like we've got police officers in our church and military veterans. Yes. They attend the, the smallest attended service, the least people yes. in the, and they sit in the back row because yes. they never want anyone behind them. Yes. I think in my early days, before I understood this, I would have tried to convince them, no, you're okay, but they're being hypervigilant. Yeah. That's what you're describing? Yeah. Yeah. But we all do it. We all do it. Yeah. We all do it. We're all naturally looking to see if we feel safe enough. So if we see, it can be anything from a facial expression to a noise that you hear to a negative thought toward yourself where you don't feel safe with who you are, that would be that first area where we feel a threat to our brain. Okay. And then our nervous system goes in to try to keep us safe. The second area, and man, this one is huge right now, is the unknown. So coming out, still kind of in the midst of, but coming out of this pandemic, we have been on a pendulum swing of pandemic comes, we experience this change as far as we're more in isolation than we are in community. What does connection look like? Changes of resources, um, health, all of these things. But here's the deal with the unknown. It's not the unknown itself that causes the threat. It's our perception of what's happening in the unknown. The meaning we're making 
in the unknown is the threat. Yeah, absolutely. So what happens in the unknown, because our brain is wired always to create order and to create meaning. If there's an unknown and we cannot, and, and we have trouble knowing the meaning that will be made or what's required of us, we just fill it in from past circumstances. So oftentimes past circumstances also include the unknown and we we fill it in with other times where we felt a threat so that an unknown means it's a perception of threat and we go into a threat response. Jeannie Duck famously says, in the absence of information, we all connect the dots in the most pathological way possible. Absolutely. That's exactly what it is. So I'm preaching a sermon that I don't think is going well. I'm reading the room. People look bored. I'm now feeling threatened and therefore... Sometimes, I mean, you see me do this. Sometimes I feel like I have to hide in the back room. Sometimes I need a pat on the head. Yep, absolutely. Absolutely. And so what you're doing is combining both. You're combining the emotional safety and the unknown from what's really going oh, on. Okay. So yeah, a piece for me is that I, I mean, actually being on this podcast is a step for me. Right. That Yeah, people right now are listening and they're like, what is wrong with Steve that he has not had his <laughs> wife on this podcast this has been a long journey. Right. It's because I've said no. And it's because I did a public speaking event years ago and I had a comment afterwards. See, here's the tears with anxiety. I had a comment afterwards that I took the comment that really wasn't horrible, but I took it to mean that it wasn't safe for me to be vulnerable within a group of people. And it has Are taken me... Are you willing me to share what the comment was? Honestly, I can't remember what the exact okay. comment was. And that's how the brain it. works. Yeah. All I remember is the meaning that I made is that it's not worth it to do this. And then you look at Enneagram 9, I want peace to be yeah. kept inside, you know? And so it wasn't worth it to risk vulnerability to me in front of other people. So thank you for being a piece of my own <laughs> jumping out of right. that right now. Right. But that's those two, right? So then any speaking event in front of other people feels unknown to me because I bring the past of it's not safe. It might not be received well. How will they interpret it? I can't control it. What if I get credit for someone else's work? Right. What if I'm seen in as, in as an expert and I'm really not? Like all of these things right. play in. So my nervous system also responds for me um, in hiding you know, or freezing yeah. with it. So, and then another one would be... But before we get under yep. the third threat, what is most helpful to you then? Like this is a real issue for a lot of people. They have mm. something that they've made meaning out of. When do you push through and when do you let it be and accept it? It's a tough one. A really tough one. What comes to mind with that is looking at how we process our own fears and emotions. So clearly I'm an internal processor um, which is fine as long as you do it for the sake of making sense of something and then being able to share it. Yeah. When you're an internal processor and you get stuck in making sense of it and then don't share it, that's when I think shame can, can seep in. And I love Brené Brown famously says, right? If you have a Petri dish and you put shame into it and you douse it with silence, secrecy, and judgment, which... For internal processors, it's really easy to do that on the inside. You right. don't need anybody on the outside. Right. Um, if you douse it with that, the shame is going to grow exponentially. But if you take um, shame, that same amount, and you put it in a Petri dish, and you douse it with just empathy, it's impossible for it to grow. So I think a lot of my journey has been, you can't douse something with empathy if you don't share it. We can be completely aware that we have an issue or that we're stuck but until you share it in a safe place, it's not going to go on a journey of healing. Mm, so I think... really good. Yeah. It's really helpful because one of the questions that came in that we weren't dig into was brave practice. What's brave practice? This is a great example of it is pushing through the meaning you make to see what's on the other side. Right. And that's where in our whole, you know, in Capable Life, we, we do a lot of emphasis on awareness and awareness is crucial. And we talk about this a lot and it's a first step. And then we have to do something with it. And oftentimes it's sharing it in a safe enough space, whether that's with one or two people. And I emphasize safe enough, you know, it's never going to be 100% safe, but 
where you feel seen and heard. I love this. I'm banging the gong on this, particularly for my podcast listeners, because so many of them believe that they can grow by listening. Yeah. But what we're encouraging is that that's a great beginning, but it's once you get it out with other people. So, all yeah. right, let's get on to the third threat. Yeah. So the third threat um, is incongruence in the environment. Again, this stuff is from Lisa Dion, and we'll probably attach her podcast. Yeah, we can link her resources yep, in the show notes. Give her credit. Um, so incongruence in the environment is can be as simple as when somebody says one thing, but their body language shows that they mean something else. You feel stuck in what you're going to hold on to and what meaning to make from it. And it feels incongruent. And so it kind of splits you. you it, it feels a threat of what's true. Would you call that cognitive dissonance as well? Also it's, cognitive dissonance. And then in yep. the MLA language, we call it a mixed message. Yep. Okay. Mixed message, all of that as well. But that that can evoke your nervous system um, to be at work to protect you. And always the nervous system, I think this original question was like this hyperventilation. Yeah. Um, the whole goal of the nervous system is to protect you to from regulate. a threat. Yeah. It's just oftentimes the threat that we perceive is not reality of what's there. So then the last one is the threat of um, shooting ourselves, right? And that is when and, and this one is different because it's internal. And this is when we take a look at things and we think, you know what? I need to be a different version of myself in order to make this work. And so we take this ideal version of, think, of who we think we should be and look at who we are and notice that huge gap that's in between. And then the judgment, the inner critic, like all of that sinks in to try to bridge the gap because we're not that ideal self, we feel threatened and we're not safe and the nervous system takes over. Okay. So just summarize for us again, the four threats. Yeah. So we've got um, physical and emotional safety. Yep. And then we've got the unknown. Again, it's not just the unknown itself, but it's our perception of the unknown and how we fill in the gap in it. Yep. And then the third one is incongruence in the environment, which is the same as cognitive distortion, mixed messages. Um, and then the fourth one is internal. And that's when we should ourselves thinking we should be at a place that we're not. Okay. So before we, we, we I think what we're going to do, because obviously on a podcast, Lisa, it's hard audibly to get some of this information. I do want us to dive into one more area of this, but let's just, can we do a bit of rapid fire on the hyperventilation? If somebody finds themselves hyperventilating, yeah. what are two or three exercises that you give your clients to help them with that? Yeah, absolutely. So um, in hyperventilation, when you have, you're already flooded and, and your body is trying to get you back, it's trying to get out what's going on inside and get you back to normal, it helps to ground yourself. And so one of the most popular grounding techniques is called 54321 and it engages your system your sensory system in order to integrate your brain and your body together. So um, five, you would notice five things that you can see around you and name them out loud. You're going to list four things that you can feel against your body. So right now I feel um, the seat on my bum. I feel my feet on the floor. I feel my hands that are like against each other. And I feel this this kind of air going against my face. So four things. And then you're going to look at three things that you can hear. You're going to name two things that you can smell and one thing that you can taste. Mm. Five, four, three, two, one. And that's going to help bring yourself back to reality. And then with that is going to be um, taking some deep breaths. Here's the thing also about breathing um, that I just wanted to bring up is that most people do like four by four breathing. It's going to be often like four counts in, four counts out, four counts in, four counts out, or you could do more, six counts in, six counts out. If you are in a panic or if you're noticing that you're anxious, it actually activates the part of your nervous system that will bring a calm. If you take more counts in your exhale than you do in your inhale. So that means you would breathe in for four and out for six. You want the breathe out to be longer and that kind of, it activates what's called the vagus nerve that will help calm you down. Yeah, we need to do a whole episode on the vagus yeah, nerve. Yeah. 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 Okay. For spinning mind people, I think the temptation is to try to think their way to peace. Oh man, yeah. What would be a tool for them? Same tool? 
Yeah, I think um, in all of this, what we're wanting to do is get out whatever is in, right? So that's why I love that that one who mentioned about the tears. That's a way to get things out. The spinning mind is usually trapped in a loop. And so that needs to be shared with people or written down in a place any way that you can do it where you can hold it, see it, or it can be shared back to you so that you can actually do something with it. Okay, I got one more question and then let's let's dive into another tool. I, I think I think one of the things that makes you such a powerful therapist is you create this like radical acceptance space. People mm-hmm. can be exactly who they are and then you guide them through. I, I think a lot of leaders, like if most of our listeners are leaders, they just tend to keep their nose down and keep going. These tools that you're talking about, how long do they take just to stop and pause and ground yourself before tackling the next thing? Oh man, that's a great question. Like the five, four, three, two, one takes uh, literally like 20 seconds or less just to do um, deep breaths. It's always encouraged to do 10. It's funny, I was just doing this um, two nights ago. I I found myself just in this spiral. And so I started doing the breathing and then um, and then for me, I like, I like to incorporate um, the giver of life, right? Bringing a breath so that when I breathe in, it's the giver of life filling that place in my body that feels so tight and so anxious and putting room around it and touching it to bring life to it rather than doom. Um, and, and those things can take anywhere from just 30 seconds to two minutes. Mm. I, I can't source it. I don't remember where I heard it. I think it was a Jewish rabbi that mm-hmm. talked about the name of God, Yahweh, yeah. is actually yes. breath. breath. And so uh, what's comforted me is like every breath I take is actually confessing mm-hmm. God as Lord. And it's a reminder that God's closer to me than the air I breathe. And, and that that itself is also a diffuser of anxiety because it brings... Yeah, the brings, presence of God presence casts of God out. It. Cast out fear. Yeah. Mm, it's powerful. Yeah. We've got we've got a ton of other tools we could tackle. Let me let me ask you another question and see what triggers mm-hmm. that in, in your toolkit, babe. This is a young mum. Okay. Uh, when my young children make a complaining statement, for example, we never get to go out for ice cream, which by the way, she puts is not <laughs> accurate when you said we make meaning. But the kids, you know, we never get to go out for ice cream. The mum says, I tend to feel guilty and I want to make it happen. I think the issue has to do with me not being differentiated. I don't cave in to make my kids stop whining. I can handle the whining. I cave because I feel sad that maybe they really are having a hard time and I could give them more of what they want. I want to take away their suffering. Oh my gosh, I can so relate to that one. (laughs) And I can't tell if this is a problem or not. I wanted to get your take as a mom and as a therapist. Is this actually a problem? What's your take on this? First of all, I want to say, wow, an incredible awareness that is that you know that you're not wanting to, you can handle the whining. It's the reality of their suffering and that hurts you. So, I mean, when you have huge empathy for what's going on for your kids, it's a gift and it can cause us to bend over backwards to please them. Yeah. Um, and so it, you know, it's interesting. I, um, one of the tools that I've learned in therapy and then use a lot with my kids, just even it's called name it to tame it. And it's like, it's just reflecting back, man, you really want ice cream right now. And it's, and we can't go right now. It's really hard when you want something that you can't have you know, and it's just holding that in empathy. And then always the question is we're wanting to build our kids to figure out for themselves is what do you want to do about it? If we can't go, what do you want to do about it? And then you're still being present um, and you're acknowledging that it's hard, but you don't feel like you have to solve it. You're putting it back on them. What's amazing about this tool, because I learned this tool from you. I think you were intuitively doing it before you were trained, Mm. is... I was raised by these amazing parents. The way I describe my mom and dad is they're saliva-based yeah. parents. <laughs> so when I came in from a, you know playing in the yard and I had a bleeding knee, yeah. I want a bandage. I think I'm going to die. And they use saliva to get the blood off and send me back out. Right. So yeah. So that's the way I would naturally parent. And it's a perfect. It's it's 1970s parenting. It's nothing wrong with yeah. it. <laughs> right. But but this counterintuitive idea that my tendency is to tell my kids, get over it, be grateful. Mm -hmm. Like I get angry, I get triggered in the threats to the brain 
it's definitely threatening my view of myself as right. a dad. Right. Oh my gosh, me too. Yeah. And also it's even making meaning like, what if I'm raising ungrateful kids? Right. All of this. Yeah. But and this moment is this going moment, to and, dictate and, that they are ungrateful. Of course. That's right. And so the way you modeled early in our parenting, and then you, you got more official language for it was this idea of, I am free to name what they're feeling and, and honor it without um, embracing it or without endorsing it, I guess. Is that? Yeah. We, that, and there'll be times where we go out for ice cream and there's times that we don't. And this is a time that we don't. It's, it's like we can, I mean, always in parenting, what I'm learning is that we're, we're looking at the longing that's underneath. Is it really ice cream? Is it, I need something right now mm, and good. ice cream first comes, you know, and we're looking at what is that longing? Because we all have those longings that we can relate to. I want to do something fun with my mom. Yeah. And what I'm calling it is ice cream. Yeah. Yeah. And it's getting to that. And then we're mm. training our kids. Longings are okay. You know, we can't do that one right now, but what, what do you want to do about that? And letting them take the lead. The other tool I'm going to ask you about is reframing because you and I both use reframing a lot. And what I'm listening for, obviously we're talking about toddlers here, but really we use this with every age group, is we are listening for exaggerations and superlatives. So when mm -hmm. I hear we never get to go out for ice cream, my temptation in the moment is to correct it. But what I've learned, I think I've mostly learned it from you, is after the incident, sometimes it's weeks or, or days, we revisit that conversation. Yes. And we're saying... Is it really never, like I, what I've learned from you is you don't do this in the moment when everyone's fluttered and reactive. That's right. not the time to. Oh, it's so hard. Yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah. And, and maybe reframing. it's more that we have times when we don't, you know, when we can do it later because we're. Oh yeah. Like oftentimes <laughs> I'm like, you're ungrateful, like more chores. <laughs> yeah, that's true too. Like, like if, if the kids are on the podcast, they'll be like, wait a minute, you're not exactly yeah, model you parents. You do this all yeah. the time. Yeah. yeah. Very true. Yeah. Uh, tell us what reframing is. Yeah. I think. It's funny, I think we would describe it maybe with different words, but to me, reframing is um, is taking it from, it's, it's finding truth in what somebody means. So we're reframing what they said to figure out what is it that they really want and how do we put words around that so it doesn't feel like a dig or it doesn't create doom. And your goal is always, I believe, you're trying to reframe so someone feels seen and cared for. Yeah. Is that, that's accurate? Yep. yep. Yeah. And then do you, because one of the threats to the brain is falsehood, like the, the meaning we make, mm -hmm. are you trying to then get them into truth? Well, hey, it's not true that we never go out for ice cream. We actually went out for ice cream four times this month. Is that a tool you use or? Yeah. And I think that's where it, it may come later, right? Because in the moment they say something because the longing often feels extreme in yeah. the moment. So they're going to use extreme words. And of course, we don't do this perfectly, but yes. But the whole idea would be to reframe would be, wow, it sounds like doing something right now is really important to you, you know, and just reframe it away from the ice cream to there's something that that you would like to do yeah. and give other options. Yeah, I'm, I'm just, I'm having my own moment here because I, I, I think mm -hmm. one of my great regrets as a parent, which probably most parents struggle with, is how many times I just assume my kids have an adult brain. Oh my gosh. Yes, and me so too. When they in their world, not getting ice cream is the end of the world. Yes, it's everything. And I want to show them compassion international and child's. Right, or right. And be grateful for what you have. And yeah. 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 Mm. Mm, so good. <laughs> okay. Um, any other physiological tools that we want to grab? Maybe one, maybe there's none, and then we're gonna move into the rapid fire questions. Yeah. It's funny. We're creating a journal right now. So some of these are going to be in our journal that, that we're creating. Hopefully um, ready to buy pre-order in May or June yeah, for listeners. Yeah. There's progressive muscle relaxation, which is a great proactive tool that you can do. And that would be um, kind of sitting in a chair, a comfortable place before bed. And you could look it up online and find it, but you basically go through all the muscle groups in your body and you are controlling, like contracting them. So you start at your head, you do your forehead, move down to your jaw, move down to your neck, you know, move on down your body, ending with your feet. And you get to control contracting them for two seconds, releasing for two seconds. Again, you can, you can bring in, um, you can bring in the Holy Spirit. You can bring God into this as well. 
but there's something about controlling the tightness and controlling the release that helps our body relax and also helps us have a sense of control where we can flip the dynamic of um, feeling driven by what's going on into, in our body to being able to um, manage it. That's really good. Yeah. So for those who were teasing you with this journal, we'll make it public, but it's going to be May or June. It's a 90-day guided journey yeah. where every week there's one tool. Yep. And then over the course of the 90 days, you then have a collection of tools. That's the idea. We're trying to piecemeal it for you. Yeah, we're, we're both really excited. We're super we're, excited about yeah. it. It's been a good excerpt. It's been good for us to do together. Uh, one more comment and then let's get to rapid fire. Um, one of the things I've learned from you is so much of your work is with children. You mm-hmm. do play therapy. And even as you were describing starting at the top of your head and working down, there is a resistance in some adults mm-hmm. that it feels, um, I don't know what it feels, but this is the gift of kids is they just do this. Yes. Um, and then I've gotten to watch how you've unlocked adults with these same tools. It's really been amazing. Yeah, man, I, I learned so much from the kids that I work with. Um, it's so funny. I just, I just had a kiddo this last week. We were working in the sand tray. Um, lead me through meditation. Like we've we've been doing this, just using the sand to ground, and um, I can really nerd out on all this. But um, you know, there's something with sand. Just if if you let it go through your hands, it actually helps your nervous system be able to sort and organize. This is what I've loved the most: is the things you've learned are just physiologically true. If you yeah. do this thing physiologically, something yeah, will happen. So grounding. And so, um, yeah, so I work with kids in the sand tray and then even with attachment and burying hands and all of this stuff. So I had this kiddo um, say, I just want, I'm just going to lead you through something. She shook my hands and she was like putting the sand all over it. How does this feel? I want you to close your eyes and take these deep this breaths. This is what she's, saying, she's saying to you. She's saying to me. Yeah. And I was like, I felt my whole body calm. (laughs) And here I am in this presence of this like young elementary kid. It was super powerful. Um, And it it is a reminder that some of this can feel like it's not important at all. Um, And then there's something powerful about seeing it work in a child and then being led by a child and experiencing through their leadership that, yeah, our brain and our bodies connected Um, It's really beautiful. Kingdom of God, the little child will lead them. Absolutely. It's really neat. All right, folks, you're listening to this episode either in late March of 2022 or later. I'm just going to ask you a question. How's your life going? Are you, seek, are you experiencing the peace and freedom and love of God that you believe in? Um, because what I know to be true is only a small percentage of you are actually intentionally walking a path of transformation. The majority of people, we still believe the lie that we can read our way to change. We can listen our way to change. We can think on our own our way to change. What you need is a trusted guide who's gone before you, who's done the difficult work so that you can walk the path. Now, I'm not saying that I'm the only one that's done that. That's absurd. And obviously, I teach systems theory. Lisa teaches other theories. Neither of us would say that the theories that we teach are the only way. That's absurd. Here's what we know, is you need somebody who has cultivated an integration of psychology and theology in a path that anyone can walk And that's what Capable Life is. You can go to Capable Life, www.capablelife.me. You can meet with almost 500 other members from 15 countries. And you can walk a path we've built for you. We've done all the difficult work and we've just made it so accessible. Every tool is in a 10-minute video. There's a peer group. You're never more than a month away from a Zoom with a coach. You can post a question anytime you want and we'll address it for you. Capablelife.me. Maybe you have a path. There are other great paths out there. But if you don't, we're going to encourage you to stop waiting. Join today and get some relief right away. Usually at this point in the podcast, we do the gauntlet. And we might have you back on to do a gauntlet. I don't know how weird it would be for me to ask you gauntlet questions. But let's go into rapid fire. 
I'll ask a question of you, then you ask a question of me. Okay. And we'll get to, I don't know, three to five questions maybe. Sounds good. I'm going to stop. Uh, this is one that came in. Um, and and the, just to give some context to this question, you know, we teach people uh, to be curious when you're anxious and when someone's anxious, use curiosity. And we also teach them, listen to them as long as they feel heard. And in that context, this <laughs> wonderful question came in. I often wonder... At what point can I interrupt people who just keep on talking? And I mean some for a very long time. Do I just stay curious and hope for the Atlantic to run dry? <laughs> this question, by the way, came to us from England. Oh, man, that's a great question. What would you um, say? Oh, golly, I love that. Um, hey, kudos to you also for being so curious um, to where it comes into an issue like this. It's burning you. I think sometimes that we think that we can be, that being curious means that we can't put boundaries up or say how we feel. Mm. I almost envision it as when we offer curious curiosity and grace, we're actually kind of feeding into the bank um, that there is safety for us to both say how we feel. So when you've been curious and you've said, tell me more, and they're going on and on, it's okay to put boundaries and say, wow, this is really hard. Let's get to and continue. Can you also keep using curiosity? Could you say, oh, one of the things I've noticed is you feel like you have a lot of words you have to say, or is that too aggressive? That's absolutely great. Yeah. Because yeah. then you're looking at the process and not the content nice. and you get them into the process. Yep, All right. Great one. Hope that helped. Yeah. <laughs> On to the next. Yep. Okay. Let's do this one. And this one is for you, babe. How to enter a new space with grace, discernment, and honor for the already existing systems. Right. And I'm assuming this is talking about in a workplace or a new role. Right. You could be talking about you just married into a family. Mm-hmm. You could be talking about you're, a, let's say, a pastor in an existing church and you're the new guy. And you're the new guy. Which what is what we stepped into. Yep. Okay. Big question. I am going to treat it rapid fire, which does not honor the depth of the question. Mm-hmm. Um, I'll, I'll say one thing. I was actually just a guest on a podcast called The Glass House, and it's a wonderful podcast with Ben and Lindley. Um, gosh, Ben and Lindley, I've suddenly in the moment forgotten your last name, but they run Lifeway at the Southern Baptist Church. And Ben and Lindley, we actually covered this. I was the guest, and we spent almost the whole hour on this question. So I would I would actually point to that um, episode on The Glass House podcast. But my my simple thing is I think curiosity is still the power tool in coming in. And I think what you're noticing is when you as the leader believe you're leading something, if we're talking about church leadership, you're leading something where the church needs to go. And the people who have been there for a long time see you as the threat against Mm. the thing they love. So where I noticed this ran ran into for us was the first time at Discovery, we went to two services instead of one. Mm. And um, there was strong resistance to go into two services because Mm -hmm. it turns out in their history, Discovery had gone from two to one. I think I said that wrong. We led them from one service to two. Right. I think I just said it wrong. Yep. And they had gone from two to one to two to one to two several times. Mm-hmm. And so the fear of failure was big. Yeah, it goes back to the threat of the brain, it right? It's unknown and what people had put into the unknown. And it's hard in that moment to not take it personally. Right. It was really they were responding to the change. Yeah, and it was one of the times where I actually did it well. There's plenty mm-hmm. of examples where I, I handled change really badly, but I think I, I noticed that there mm-hmm. was a threat and I was curious about what mm-hmm. was going on. What was interesting okay. on that, just to finish that story, is we were young and rookies and a lot of the resistance was trying to protect us from failing. Oh, I remember we, that's where we got. It was a volunteer yep, meeting. That's right. And I remember having to say to people, I'm not afraid to be wrong. I'm not afraid to fail. But if we don't go to two, we're not going to reach more people. And if we fail, it's okay. But they were actually trying to protect me as the young leader, which was quite beautiful, actually. And you were trying to just not stay stuck. But it came out as as resistance, yeah. Mm, So good. All right, here's a total left field question for you. Okay. What about weird dreams and what they mean? Um. Yeah. So I. This is not an expertise area for me at all. What What I do know about sleeping at night is that once our body and our nervous system, once our brains, once everything is at rest, that those things that are still unsettled or causing anxiety, um, or for those that are in parts, parts of self, they're still at work. And so it comes up in really odd ways and in our dreams. And so sometimes it means something 
And sometimes it doesn't. (laughs) Sometimes it's just um, the processing that's going on within you. And sometimes it's something to pay attention to. Here's one. So I remember um, I have had a recurring dream about um, having a bunch of people over and being concerned that we have enough room at our house. And then all of a sudden, um, remembering that there is a whole nother section to our house that we don't use and it's behind this trap door and open it. I'm like, why haven't I remembered this, Mm. right? And it's been a powerful dream. And it wasn't until I was sharing it with um, one of our worship leaders that her look was like, interesting. And I'm like, oh, you're right. The recurring dream of there is more Mm. than what you think, right? So that's one where there's unsettled stuff and this weird dream and there might be meaning. And then there's other weird dreams that come up and you're like, what in the heck? And you can let go of and Mm. it's okay. I like it. I think we would both say you're you're the clinician and I'm I'm the pastor here. I think we would both say, um, in that spirit, then beware of people who dismiss all <laughs> dreams and beware of people who, who make meaning out yes. of all dreams. Okay, yes. great. Yep. Okay, next one for you, babe. How to transition to a new role within a familiar space? What patterns need to change? How do you help create a healthy system when a familiar face now has a new role? I mean, we're living that right now, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Wow. Okay, boy, yeah, that's another big question. So obviously, Lisa and I handed over leadership to the church to this fantastic uh, young leader named Zach. Mm -hmm. And I've stepped away. We're calling it a sabbatical, but frankly, it's really just to get out of his way. Oh, yeah. And um, as of the, when you listen to this podcast, I'll be back at church. Mm -hmm. So I think there's a mentor of mine named Don Wilson And he was very helpful where he said that leadership succession, if you're staying, 90% of the success of succession, in other words, the 90% of the ability for it to go well is in the hands of the outgoing leader. I didn't say that very cleanly. What I mean is I have the primary responsibility to make sure that it goes well. Yes. And so what I've tried to do is I tried to make sure as we were transitioning months before I transitioned, I have less and less power. Yes. I, um, I'm no longer an elder at our church. Mm-hmm. I no longer have direct contact with the elders of our church, which was difficult because mm-hmm. we're friends. Right. And so yep. I miss them. Yeah. But it would also, I think, complicate things for them and for Zach if I'm going around him. So now I have a boss. Right. Uh, we've made the decision that I don't work for Zach. I work for one of Zach's leaders. Mm-hmm. Um, and then some simple things like it'd be neat for Zach to talk as well because obviously he'd have a whole story about this that would be be great, great. to have him on. I should actually. have him. It'd be really <laughs> be neat, really good. Yep. to have him on, and then to to consider the dynamic of should someone else interview Zach. Mm-hmm. So you know, I'm not the one he's looking at when he answers these questions. But yep. we had an early conversation that I'm not going to be his mentor. I'm going to be his cheerleader because mm-hmm. that's more of a step down rather than a. Right, we're coming behind you. Yeah, yeah well, like we're cheering him on. I want to be a force of encouragement in his life. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I think what's interesting, babe, is none of us know yet if that's still going to work. Like even with all that well-meaning, it might be that it's best that that we're gone Yeah, and that that's not entirely our decision. Yeah, I get really concerned with these churches with where the lead pastor always chooses the successor and then the lead pastor doesn't have to stick around to pay the price for that decision. So we did not choose. Right. We're holding this loosely. Right? It comes back to curiosity again, right? And just, yeah. just noticing what what's going on, what's needed, what's not, where. Yeah. And neither of us tend to think of what we need. This is still mm-hmm. a late journey for us. And I'm still not quite sure what yeah. I need with this. So yeah. everyone knows that as well. That's been an open conversation. So yeah. yeah. Great yeah. question. Okay, here's another one. I really like this question, and I, I, have, I, I can name the person because it's uh, a Sean. My friend Sean sent this one in, mm. and I love what Sean's doing. Is there such a thing as secondary anxiety? The anxiety that comes from helping anxious people, kind of like secondary trauma. Mm. This is your world, babe. Yeah. So, sometimes you'll have seven clients in a day. Yeah, yeah. I, it's actually, it's both of our worlds. It's And we talk about that quite a bit. Um, absolutely, yes. There is such a thing as carrying the anxiety of others and um, experiencing it secondhand. Um, I'm still on a journey of this one. Um, there's, 
again, for me, um, when I, when I keep it in, it's really hard to manage. So what's going on in the inside for me has to come out. It's hard because what I do is confidential work. Um, so I've had to, to do some work around how do I share how I might be activated um, in a very honoring way with still keeping my work very confidential. And I think we're figuring that out. Um, just naming, naming, you know, what's happening in me as a result of being triggered. And then there's also, you know, the practices that you can do. Like sometimes I put things in the sand tray at my work and just kind of close it. Sometimes I put pebbles in there representing things and trusting that God's going to take care of them. So I don't, that's actually a form of um, containment Mm. that has been super helpful. Oftentimes I can be okay when I come home and then it comes back up at bedtime and I, I need to do the practice of containment where I really take time to, um, between me and the Lord, name what's going on inside of me and picture putting it into, for me, it's a cedar chest um, that belonged to my grandma that has um, a scent that I really love and held valuable things. Um, That's that and, smell that you were talking about in the 54321. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. That's really cool. And then, and then putting those things that are not, that are not yet solved in there. And then knowing that, you know, the, the Lord is really in the cedar chest with those things. The Lord is at work in ways that I don't see, um, sometimes in the ways that I don't feel and that I can rest. And so containment also is a, is a healthy practice for me as well. I love, I love that we asked this question because as, as your spouse, it's amazing like some of your clients are able to reach you out of the office. They reach mm-hmm. out on the phone or text. And it's amazing to watch you step out of the room and, and deal with it and then come back and be present to us, which mm-hmm. I think must be quite difficult at times knowing that mm-hmm. like, like it is something our family jokes about. We really don't know what you do. Mm-hmm. Um, we and don't... I may not do what I say I do. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you might be in the CIA right. as it turns out after yeah. all. Um, but we do know the nature of what you do is actually life and death at times. Mm-hmm. And so your ability to leave that with God and be present to us is pretty, pretty amazing. Mm, I'm going to yeah. receive that. Thank you. Yeah. Yep. Oh, great. Okay. Hey, we've gone about an hour. That's about it. I think we're going to be having Lisa back on the show. Um, listeners, reach out. Give us your thoughts there. because <laughs> um, This is a brave journey for you, babe, to get out in public like you mm-hmm. your favorite place is behind a closed safe door with one person right that's oh, where absolutely. you love to be and so yeah. this is a different way of being yeah. um but it's a huge gift to us so thanks for coming on this was really fun yeah, for me it's been fun yeah and life-giving actually yes all right all right folks um on that note back next week with a guest for more resources visit stevecusswords.com or missyoualliance.org 